Bookworm Games, episode 58, Run to the End of the World. When we're ready to take on the ending of Xenogears, we go from one downed flying city, Shivat, aka Snowfield Hideout, to another even more profoundly earthbound, Merkava, Krellian's Ark, now terraformed into the earth and called simply Deus. Augustine's City of God, it ain't. The initial area could still be airborne, for all we can see. Skies all around, yet somehow it still conveys the ominous, ruin-slash-unfinished feel of the Anima Dungeon sequence. There's no elaborate breaking-through-the-barrier cutscene this time, just a kind of hatchway that opens to admit our party into that structure whose surface is so unexpectedly sleek and inviting. Once inside, there'll be no turning back, at least not until reaching the final rooms. We land in a hallway, taking its aesthetic cues from Tron to complement the Empire Strikes Back Hoth feel of Shivat. The mapping is complete, Faye says, and if you remember how to check your map from way back in the Kislev sewers, you'll see the innards of Deus look like a honeycomb or a section of chicken wire. Corridors are futuristic rather than organic, complete with lasers sweeping back and forth for you to jump over. Again, it's contrary to expectations given the very organic-looking Deus we've seen, the Mahanan battle and the bandaged eyeball spouting mass in Merkava. But this is Merkava, only possessed by Deus, just as we saw in the opening cutscene, except now the captain of the ship is Krellian. He is seemingly collaborating with the planetary weapon, by no means sacrificing himself to defeat it. The toughest part of the maze is, as ever, its sameness. The enemies, though plentiful, should go down in a few hits, and they drop armor to nullify their pesky angel-type attacks. They come in a few flavors, swords, missile launchers, spellcasters, but despite their seraphic title, the awe we should feel here is rather reserved for our own angelic gears, as Faye and Emeralda are likely part of your final overpowered party. Through the bifurcating halls of repurposed technology we go, arriving at dead ends with nothing to reward our doggedness except the EXP gained along the way, until in the northeast corridor of the floor there's the vertical shaft inviting further descent. Dropping down it, the camera slides behind to echo the undersea tunnels of the third gate, only this time with lasers for obstacles. And now things get really complicated. The next floor, in lieu of the claustrophobic zigzag of hallways or the nauseating drop, throws us an enormous open chamber housing a network of disconnected paths, with elevators to toggle between upper and lower levels, and atop some of the elevators, luminous switches like colossal dials we can turn to change the direction the path leads. There's no direct route to the central chute, marked helpfully in red on the map and pointed out by a party member upon the entrance as our goal. Instead, we must meander through the vast puzzle until coming to the entrance to one of the smaller side rooms, service ducts large enough to permit gears. These are stocked with enemies, whereas the big room seems like a safe no-man's land to permit the player to concentrate on figuring out where to go. 
piecing together the two areas, despite their separate maps, moving between the upper and lower levels of the main room, putting up with the incessant enemy encounters in the ducts, figuring out how to move the dials and the switches, and finding few, if any, treasures for all our efforts, might the player start missing the retrospective narration mode, which allowed us to skip dungeon crawling? If this is the extent of the gameplay mustered for the final dungeon, can we fault the developers for opting for something more streamlined to permit the kind of storytelling they were after? Still, it's tempting to read into this huge empty space with its winding side hatches an allegory for the game's ambitions, incompletely realized and yet somewhat clunkily hanging together. The player can traverse it, but must give things a turn here and there. Look at things on a couple of levels, from different angles, byways, to make the path navigable. It all eventually leads to our third place to jump down. A party member will ask for your go-ahead, calling it a gate. We have to do it, though it means descending a second laser-ridden gauntlet. And then, at the end of the disorienting fall, another kind of deja vu hits us. The party drifts down between the reproduction of the two angels of Nisan, mingling allusions to the two of every kind aboard Noah's Ark, the two cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant, with more immediate in-game references. We've been here before. The only difference is we're piloting Xenogears this time. The God-given true form of Veltal, descending through that space opened up by human imperfection and rendered in a marriage of art and technology, makes even more relevant the questions we raised last time we saw this scene. What is Krellian up to, framing our entrance this way? The rooms from here on are reused from our last visit to Merkava too, only there's no Ramses or Miang to rush us this time. Shopkeep Johnny's still there, plying his trade at the edge of the precipice, and he'll even offer to let us go outside by it. There's no shortcut back to this point, though. It's a one-way only out. Beyond the creepy vats of Krellian's lab, we come to the cross where Ellie was, the ring where Deus was, both empty, the game asking this time not a character if we want to jump down. Now, this is what I was looking forward to, the inside of Deus looking like. All red, distorted energy crackling. Like they do, Bart and Satan offer their opposing strategies, whether to go straight for Deus's core or take out its support pillars first, saving Xenogear's strength for the final battle. Billy, sensibly, leaves it up to Faye, and thus the player, to decide. We should note that this is one of the few consequential decisions in what is a very linear game, but it comes down to tactics and, perhaps, temperament having no bearing on the ending. Each of the four orbs revolving a bit like the ministers used to do, or the pictures in Cain's throne room, shine with a different color, though the difference is difficult to see. The sub-bosses' names are confusingly similar, too. We have Metatron, traditionally the name given to Enoch after he walks with God. Sundell, 
which is supposed to be Sandalphon, it looks like, another angel name. Marlute and Harlut, no clue on those. Though, once you get into battle, you see their actual appearances are wildly different, as are their abilities. In most cases, these are gimmicky, but challenging. One, a golden glyph does a punishing fuel drain and can't be targeted with combos. Another, a pink floating triangle heals itself and counters your attacks, targeting a single party member for special treatment. Another, a dark column of gravity freezes your characters outright and hits with all sorts of status effects. And one, the most humanoid or deusoid, just has straightforwardly powerful attacks. The benefit of taking them out, though, is clear. At least if you listen to Doc. Bart would argue it's a waste of time. It gives your other party members something to do, for one thing. So it feels like the whole team is contributing. It also reduces Deus's max HP considerably, and seals off each of those special attacks the main boss would otherwise use. Hilariously, and undercutting any rational explanation of this all-important stat, each of the sub-bosses nets your party a single point of experience. Thematically, we see that as our manifold hero Fae contains multitudes, artist and fighter, surgeon and spaceship wreck survivor are just some of his past lives, and in the present life, his soul has been composed of four distinct personae, recently harmonized with a little help. So Deus comprises four support structures and a central core, allowing for a variety of approaches. Its amorphous exterior conceals the bodies of most humans on the planet, and some portion of the planet itself merged with the Merkava and converted into weaponry. As we know, somewhere within that core, Ellie and Krellion await. Interestingly, Deus is not the aggressor here, but seems content to await your decision. You're able to switch out party members and re-equip between fights, a bit like in that sequence back in Shavat defending the generators. And though it irks me to say, thinking back to her bizarre inclusion into the party around that point in the game, Chu Chu's unique ability to heal other party members' gears during battle comes in pretty handy against some of these bosses, saving on fuel and freeing up the others to attack. So, whether full-powered or reduced by chipping away at its orbiting teammates, Deus is, to all appearances, the final boss. The godlike being, with his own epic music track, deploys gear-sized angels from its hands, spends most of the fight simply meditating. For an interplanetary weapon, Deus is almost tranquil. For a great mother, she's awfully svelte. No great challenge either way, the boss does have one ultimate attack, per the RPG tropes of the time. This entails a view from space and a massive explosion, but depending on your gear setup, it might not deal more than a few thousand HP worth damage, while you'll be dealing several times that every turn. In short order, Deus goes down in an elaborate explosion of its own. Back in the final room, the party takes stock. The core, despite what we just saw, seems to be still intact for the moment, 
none of the other gears can move once more, for the Zohar is broken. Yet some sensors, which still work somehow, are sensing life within the unstable remains of Deus. Those ominous vibrations, though, are the wave existence making good its release and trying to return to its higher dimension. The aftershock, it seems, will be more than enough to annihilate the planet. Did the voice Faye heard mention that little detail? But maybe we should have seen it coming, foreshadowed in countless ways throughout the game. The being ensnared in the Zohar gave him a gear which still works, though, by Faye's direct contact with the wave existence, and the floating central core of Deus now begins moving away, too. Ellie, it seems, overhearing or anyhow aware of their plight, is going to sacrifice herself yet again for others by pushing the explosive point of release off-world. After Satan's doubtful remonstrating about the danger and Bart's exacting from him a promise to make it back, and not one but two puns from the old girl, Faye takes off after Ellie. Flight plays, and we should note that Xenogears, like most gears, has been able to fly this entire time. If we had thought of it sooner, that might have made the final dungeon a little smoother. Faye takes off into space, running into a dimensional wormhole, leading to the path of Sephiroth, that psychic expanse where Faye spoke to the wave existence, and perhaps where he and Ellie and Satan have been speaking to us throughout Disc 2. This time, the music is One Who Bears Fangs at God, a delicate remix of the opening theme and Merkava. Ellie is there, curled up, glowing. Faye stands before her, both of them bearing more than fangs. The title of that track I take to refer to Krellian, who appears as a shadowy face against the background. He calls this place, these figures, projections of Faye's unconsciousness. God, is returning at last. What are you doing here, Lacan? Lacan, he calls Faye. At a stroke, Krellian's plan becomes clear, and the pathos behind it comes out in that rhetorical question, and that name, ancient within the game, and full of mirroring as a subtle real-world referent. Faye, of course, hopes to return with Ellie to life on Earth, while Krellian desires to return with the wave existence to that higher dimension. Their counterparts in their motivations, the one with a love of humankind, the other of God. Faye and Ellie are embodied, vital. Krellian is a disembodied head, a cold intellect. He gives voice to a corrosive argument that deception is the root of human love, a comfortable distance, the best we can hope for, whereas Faye and Ellie's experience suggests the possibility of true intimacy. Faye counters that no one has the right, which Krellian and perhaps his idea of God have arrogated to themselves, to choose others' fate. 
he objects that this too is a delusion, forgivable since humans were created that way. The free will Fay prizes is itself predetermined. Krellian calls it the wretched will. Yet that was what the wave existence learned that it needed in order to return, creating Ellie for Fay from the start, perhaps, but depending on the two of them throughout their generations to create and pursue anew that will to connection, to that point that now, even as it is about to return to its home, the wave existence seemingly pauses to allow this set piece in which Faye and Krellian oppose their wills and their concepts of love, their conscious and unconsciousness given form here on the threshold between this dimension and the higher world from which all creation, we're told, originally stemmed. From Miang as keeper of time to Ellie, the true yearned mother, and from the, tr- the time of the gospel to tomorrow, both set off with hyphens in the same way, we get the time and space in which to work these questions through. Faye believes our very lack of knowledge, our imperfection, is what makes humanity what it is, dear to us. The strictures of finitude, of limitation, so evident throughout Xenogears, are all we can know. Yet as the wave existence intuits, lending its power to Fay and throwing in its lot with him and Ellie, the limits are where things touch. Without them, there is no point of contact. Infinite possibility may, for all we know, preclude realization. But Krellian, for his part, has something right. That point of contact could finally open a path, a bridge to something further beyond our comprehension as we are now. Lonely as it is, he stakes everything on taking this further path. Sharing this understanding at the moment of parting with the wave existence, Krellian's risk is the counterpart of Faye and Ellie's own. He is as intent on transcending as they are on saving the world and its people, including attempting to heal Krellian's heart. They are complementary faiths. Krellian's in the beyond he can only imagine, phase in the woman whose love he feels, trusting and knowing her will as if it were my own, he says. She and I are one. We don't need God's help. Krellian, without Ellie, for her love, as we saw when he made her come to him at Golgotha, is limited in this important respect to Faye. Krellian throws down the final challenge of the game. Show me this love. It is a representation in that inadequate yet engaging way we've played through all along. Sublimated, vicarious, giant mech combat. The winged serpent with Miang's lustrous hair and torso against Xenogears, hypermode wings lit. Urobolos, we see this emanation is called. That is, Uroboros, the image of infinity, infinitude. The snake eating its own tail, the self-consuming totality pointing towards eternal return, the mythic archetype of completion. Krellian's avatar is quick and slashing, but this last fight, even more so than that against Deus, 
proves more dramatic and thematically rich than challenging or all that compelling as gameplay. Perfectly fitting, then, for this game. Like a good poem, Xenogears could not be improved while remaining what it is. The fight won. The one who bears fangs at God bows out. The treasure which cannot be stolen plays. Ellie stands tall, still haloed in light. Crelion released her, she says. His sadness at knowing that with all he had done there was no going back for him moves Ellie to say he loved people more than anyone. Faye knew it somehow, perceptive with Ellie's perceptiveness or convinced by some insight picked up in their battle, the first and only time we see Crelian directly fighting. What's more, Ellie is sorry for sacrificing herself when her life is not hers alone. But Faye has accepted this, too, having seen it enough times by now to know it's her way. In this life, he had the means to change the future, going after her before it was too late. Their interdependence and mutual willingness to sacrifice gets reinforced here. Heteronormative it may be, but I think, like Ellie's heart-to-heart with Margie, it's not a retreat from feminism, but a continuation of it. Ellie is still above Faye, symbolically, yet they are together, naked before one another and unashamed. His response in full. To sacrifice yourself for others is a noble thing. Even if it were to benefit yourself, it's no problem. There will always be a person healed, one or the other. Love gains its original shine only when there's an interrelationship between the giver and the receiver. It is incomplete when one or the other is missing. The two are one. It was you, Ellie, who taught me that. I believe that is what it means to be human. I can now understand the true importance of it. I don't know if it's the right answer or not. But we have a lot of time to think about it. What Krellian himself was looking for all along, we will find the answer to it all ourselves. If it sounds pat or incoherent on its own, in the context, this works. I take this to be the meaning and the happy ending Faye and Ellie have earned by now. The player, too, has been prepared by disc two to hear it, has been made receptive to this message's dense content through an all-embracing narrative form that carries the game to the finish line. We are captivated by the investment of time and emotion we've put in, the contributions we've made hand-in-hand with the developer's determination to see it through. One last extended animation takes us out to the credits. From ripples to the reflected forms of Faye and Ellie, as in a glass darkly, then dropping down face to face, a shining light far off, one last cross. Will they make it if they run together? Hand in hand, her body chastely veiled in a glare reminiscent of the pendant. Breathing hard, she stumbles as he pulls. She falls, cries something to him inaudible above the crackling spiral path coming apart. He leaps 
reaching out for her, all their running having brought them together in an embrace. The coda to this long conversation, a sort of dance allegory of their whole relationship. The keep hold through the energy vortex, raining them back down to a fragment of land floating in space, where we say goodbye to Krellian. He laments his so many sins, as images of test subjects like Ramses and Faye flicker past, haunting him still, so that the only one who could have forgiven him is God. It's hard to hear that in English. I took it to be saying, is gone, but either way, it's a great line. Faye and Ellie have forgiven him already. They tell him it's not too late to atone. But Krellian can't forgive himself, is what it comes down to. With his own take on the mysterious smile, ever the peacemaker, Lacan, he says. One last juxtaposition of religion and psychology in the game's epic script. With that wry humor, that last bit of human warmth, angel wings of pure light fledge from his shoulder blades. The camera zooms way out to where the notional land mass vanishes in a point of light, taking Krellian and the wave existence home. Given what they learned from Faye and Ellie in their sojourn, Krellian, the two-winged angel, and the existence like Sophia in the Gnostic myth, form a love story every bit as interesting, if more abstract, than Faye and Ellie's. And softly, under it all, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, music theme, plays a cappella, with Takahashi's lyrics sung in Bulgarian. Here's a translation. They are alone in the oppressing dark, but luminous power is granting their hope. They are walking without a path and destination, looking for a way to the heavens. In a moment they will see beyond the woods, they see behind the woods a beam of light. Two hearts are warmed by the generous day. Free clouds are flying. Gloria. Back on the planet, the remaining party find themselves in a grassy landscape, running to the edge of a hillside, as if that might bring them closer to the horizon, to the atmosphere into which their friends flew off. Satan and Bart and the radio man, maybe shopkeep Johnny or one of the Yggdrasil's crew, frantically search for signs of life. It's Emerald, though, who, with the player, sees the gear descending first. The image of her eye catching a reflection of what the character sees is deployed one more time, like Abel and the Zohar, Miang and the falling wreckage, only this time it's Xenogears descending intact. Thank goodness, despite most of the playable characters having no lines here, we get Choo Choo bouncing around between them to give us a look at them all, chewing away merrily. And there they are at last, the host for the spirit of the Slayer of God, carrying Ellie and Faye together in the cockpit. The death of Deus, the freeing of the higher power at its core, the release of humanity from a destiny of destructive violence, of the planet from a terraformed hell, and perhaps of these souls from cycles of rebirth. 
they accomplished it all by their reliance on one another. Substituting the terrible, false, oppressive God of Solaris and the ethos for that image of the true God as the voice everyone has within worth believing in, the empty space at the heart of Nisan through which humans can reach out to one another, whether to follow their faith into an infinite potentiality like Krellian, or here we see to hold one another close and return home. With shouts of joy, the others go running to meet them. So the credits play, ending on the mother's birth and resting place on its hillside, a river winding through the valley below, a feather of light floating down from above. And then the game hits us with one final cliffhanger. The end screen calls this Xena Gears episode 5. Roman numeral 5. As for what those other episodes, 1 through 4 and it turns out 6, might be, while Xenosaga is a kind of offshoot, the companion lore book to Xenogears, Perfect Works, gives an idea of the real thing. Ultimately, though, it's left for the player to imagine. Inspiring, bewildering, ridiculous, sublime. Xenogears, in so many ways flawed and unfinished as a game, nevertheless stands before us whole and unabashed as drama, poetic, philosophical, and beautifully realized. Much as I've tried in this project to bring that out, tracing and explicating some of the ideas behind Xenogears, nothing captures the essence of the game so well as the music. So, in lieu of recommended readings this time, I leave you with links to the music, which I hope you'll enjoy listening to and musing on. Here's a brief look at the end credits song to get you started. The original version is in English, sung by Joanne Hogg, and is titled Small Two of Pieces, Screeching Shards, with lyrics by Sato Kato. The Creed arranged album version is called Mobius, sung by Tetsuko Hanma, with lyrics by Junko Kudo. Here's the original lyrics. Run through the cold of the night, as passion burns in your heart, ready to fight, a knife held close by your side, like a proud wolf alone in the dark with eyes that watch the world, and my name like a shadow on the face of the moon. And I'll pause there for a little commentary. There's an orchestral opening in which Mitsuda's beautiful melody features prominently. And there's no rhyme here, uh, no end rhyme, that is. But there is a clear structure of imagery setting up a narrative and a mood, evoking rather than making direct reference to anything in the game. Cold and burning, eyes and shadows, the world and the moon. They sort of rhyme. These end credits songs all seem to occupy a space very like the retrospective chair of disc two, with its spotlight falling now on one character, now another, on one picture and then another. Faye doesn't use a knife, but neither does anyone else, and in other respects he resembles the proud wolf. 
it makes sense to read him as the one running, whether in fear at the beginning or in determination at the end of the game. But the proud wolf could just as well be Krellian, or the player for that matter, who more than anyone else watches the world. The speaker, then, would be in Ellie's position. Her name, Lunar, feminine, magical, but also open to interpretation, like the game. And this goes straight into the chorus. Broken mirror, a million shades of light, the old echo fades away. But just you and I can find the answer. And then we can run to the end of the world. We can run to the end of the world. The mirror is a lunar image again, reflecting the sun. It's also an art image, an artifice, an image of vanity, but also self-reflection. And it's broken, the one shattering into many. It works as an image of the speaker, of humanity, of the game. The old echo could be nostalgia, the music box. More clearly, though, that's referenced in the unused track, Stars of Tears, with a whole unused video that goes with it. Uh, and that's based on the world map theme as well. This echo, then, is a kind of aural reflection. And as destiny or tradition, it falls away to allow some new search for truth. That we is important here. They're running together to the utmost limit. We get an orchestral reprise of the opening winds, and then the drums come in for the next verse. Cold fire clenched to my heart in the blue of night. Torn by this pain, I paint your name in sound. And the girl of the dawn with eyes of blue and angel wings, the songs of the season are her only crown. A little more rhyme there. And we could take this as the figure from the first stanza, the proud wolf speaking. Or could be that same female speaker. The painting in sound, the pain, makes an elegant link of sympathy and act two. Then the girl ought to be Ellie too, but it could be the original Miang, Keeper of Time, or Emeralda, the angel, whose theme song is June or October, Mermaid, and who's associated with a Christmas tree, of all things. The chorus comes back round, followed by a guitar solo and a bass groove. The final verse, we met in the mist of morning and parted deep in the night. Broken sword and shield, and tears that never fall, but run through the heart, washed away by the darkest water. The world is peaceful and still. The crescendo keeps building here. The heart seems to be the climax, by the water, it's already ebbing, to a sudden diminuendo echoed in the lyrics, and a sudden fade to harp and whistle. Get a final restatement of the refrain. Broken mirror, a million shades of light, the old echo fades away. But just you and I can find the answer, and then we can run to the end of the world. We can run to the end of the world. Run to the end of the world. The meaning of the mirror has been modified by the sword and shield. 
I take it to be history or the idealized image. As for what finding the answer looks like, the song gives us the clear command, run and keep running. The enjambment of one line running into the next, repeating is like waves. The internal rhyme then and end suggests each end, each answer is followed then by another. Run, that same word that started the song, which has run through its refrain, is the last image we're left with and a sense of hope and striving that this end should also be a beginning. That's announced from the title of the reprise, Mobius. I can't do as much as the words as I'm relying on an internet translation and I don't know the original language, but some major differences seem safe to point out at least. It starts. Let's walk to the ends of the earth and open the rusty doors. Everything's come to an end. Our road begins from this place onward. A more sedate feel, walking instead of running. An end which is a beginning. In place of exact refrains, these lines will be varied each time the chorus comes around. Quoting again. In this endless blue sky, ten million stars hide themselves. Here is the truth you can see with your eyes closed. That lunar image gets changed to a daylight one. The idea that the stars are always there, if unseen. And that image of the eyes closed, a sky, a mind, in place of the broken mirror. We get the quiet flute, we get the drums. There's someone leading me. There's something controlling. Someone, a force greater than luck, envelops our world. I can't make much of the syntax there, but that force could be love free will, ambition. Anyhow, that someone speaks a purpose, not chance, not luck. New words pick up in the chorus. A story opening dazzlingly spins ten million dreams. Piled up memories aren't frightening, surely. That sounds a lot like Xenogears, again, without referring to anything in particular unless maybe to that bombed-out house in Shivat where the dancing mirror is. The expansiveness of the ten million, repeated, leads us into the guitar solo here, and then, Ah, let me hear your beat. Let me hear the words only your body understands in order to voyage even further beyond luck. And the crescendo again, more romantic, than the combat imagery of the original version. Flute comes back in. In the hot joy of a single moment, ten million nights waver. Don't cry. Time is always a turning mubius, carrying everything. The mood in this version is just as passionate, yet quieter than the original. That idea of a moment of joy making up for any number of disappointments, one world with life on it redeeming any number of stars and planets, is meant to be moving. But again, tears are held in by a vision of continuity, of time turning as well as running, like the music somehow carrying the whole within it. <laughs> 
Thanks for listening.